Hey guys, Pastor Jürgen here. We're so excited you're tuning into one of our amazing messages. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, it's going to be real, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to help you to grow stronger in your walk with God. It's going to put faith on the inside of you. It's going to cause you to be able to walk in greater dimensions of blessing and enlargement so that you can be a blessing to other people. Well, lean in, enjoy the Word. God bless you. The message that I want to share with you guys today intimidated me a little bit because I kind of wanted to play it safe. I got here, and, and I've never been here before. I got to, we got the pleasure of meeting Pastors Matt and Loren last year at the marriage retreat. So much fun. If y'all, if y'all have a chance, I've never seen a party. I remember we were, uh, we had this big pool party, and then I'm in my office the next week after the getaway, the marriage getaway. And I remember my clients, they were, um, so Brian, you had, you had a good time at the marriage getaway. And I said, why do you say that? They said, well, we were sitting in the lobby to get a massage. And right outside the doors of the lobby for the massage area is the pool. And we hear this lunatic <laughs> screaming, playing beer pong. And we look over, we see Dr. Matt. Is that Dr. Brian? And I was like, yeah, it was, it's a different place. I've never gotten to play beer pong with clients. It was, um, it was, it was water. It was virgin beer pong. I'm just saying. <laughs> it was a good time. So if you guys get a chance to go, I've never seen a party. We got to meet them last year. That's why I'm telling this story. And uh, we were so excited to come out here. And I did not expect when we got to land, it, it took a minute to register. It feels like something is breaking. Yeah. It feels like something is breaking open in this city, that light is coming through, that the Spirit of God is in. There's a joy in this city. Let me tell you what, guys. If you are new to this environment, this is a room. This is what this, the anointing of joy feels like. And this is, this is what the Spirit of God feels like. It is such an honor. Uh, another fun thing. Actually, uh, when, we, when we met last year, it was kind of, it was kind of fast friendship because we, we all went out to dinner, all the campus pastors, and because and, I was one of the speakers, we got, to, we got to go and we were hanging out. And we realized that we're from the same, we both lived in the same part of Northern California, which is not the sexy part of Northern California. It's the San Joaquin Valley, 209, she just called it out. We call it the armpit of California, if you're a Californian. And so we had this, we had this shared... Uh, this shared connection. And uh, when we were driving in, another person who made quite an impression, Pastor Andy, he picked us up at the airport. Amazing. It was so much fun. And he's driving over and he's telling us all about the city. He's kind of, we can't see anything, but he's telling us normally there would be mountains around you right now. It's really beautiful. It's dark. It's nighttime. (laughs) And the next day we were driving towards these slopes and my daughter starts to notice like as the, the ice, as the snow melts, it kind of creates these unique shapes, right? Like it's like a, it's almost like pillowy. And she's like, why does it do that? And I was like, sweetie, I don't know. And I was just about to start like guessing, like maybe it's the atmosphere. And she cuts me out. She said, Pastor Andy will know. I'm like, okay, ouch, but you're probably right. One of the things that that slammed me last night when I sat down because I was really sitting down yesterday. It was the afternoon. It was probably like two, three in the morning, two and three in the afternoon, and I was sitting down just to review a message that I have prepared and shared before, 
because I want I, I really just, this is so special to us. It's so, we're so excited to be here. I wanted to bring something that felt really good, a.k.a. safe. And I sit down and I start to review this, this material. And I, God takes me in this whole different direction. And he just starts to open up my heart. And my wife comes down like two, two, two and a half hours later. And she's like, Brian, are you crying? <laughs> and this thing that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the story of Jacob. And there's, a, there's two moments in Jacob's life where he gets given a name. And the first name that he gets given, we actually realize, isn't a really good reflection of who he is. It actually comes from a different place. And when I was going through this, there's this, there's this scene we're going to take a look at where, where God turns to Jacob in a moment of absolute desperation. And God asks Jacob, what is your name? And the thing that was on my heart was this sense that God is saying, these people, this city thinks they know its name. They think that the spirit of religion is their identity. And God is coming in. And God is in the move right now, creating a new name. He's giving it a new name. See, there's these three turning points in Jacob's life that I had never... Um, I had never... I had never organized this way. I had never really seen how God is doing this, this macro work, this big picture work in Jacob's life. If you don't know who Jacob is, Jacob is uh, one of what we call the, the patriarchs of the church, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God established the lineage of Jesus through these three men. And uh, Jacob is one of, of a twin. Jacob has a twin named Esau. They were um, in the womb together as twins, as twins do. <laughs> And when Jacob was born, Esau comes out first, and Jacob is holding on to his heel. And the, the midwife tells this to his mom, Rebecca. And Rebecca says, all right, he's grasping. My second son is grasping at the heel of my first. And so we will call him heel grabber, which in Hebrew, that word has a very, very strong double meaning. Heel grabber is another word for usurper or supplanter. It's when you say somebody is grabbing at their heels, what it means is they are trying to come in underneath and take their place. They're trying to take somebody else's position. And I think it never occurred to me, it felt more prophetic. And I think it is. But I never gave it the credit that, uh, that started to surface because there's something really, really powerful about a name. Name has weight. Name creates freedom and name creates curse. Name sets us free and our name also tells us our restrictions and our limitations. There was, a, there was an experience I had really young when I was a college student when we all went to Ireland. Team, a, team, a team of us in my, uh, my college ministry went to Ireland. We we're going to go run a youth camp for like 13, 14, like junior hires, high schoolers. Uh, we were excited and I was really new to this church. I hadn't been a part of this church very long. And I was, a, I was a pretty straight-laced guy. Like, I went through a season in my life where um, you fast one day a week. Oh, really? I fast three days a week. I was that kind of, we have a word for it. We have a word for it. Um, and I probably didn't have a lot of friends yet. So either way, we're, we are on the airport shuttle. We're, we're going up to the airport, and everybody starts to talk about how the tag that the leaders printed out for me, they misspelled my name. So Brian Ricewig is spelled Brian 
Weisswig with a W, like Elmer Fudd tripped it up or something. It's really, and somebody who grew up with, with a difficult name anyways, I'm like, whatever, bring it. I went through junior high, I can handle this. And then somehow on the same bus ride, we start to talk about showering. I don't know why. And we started to talk about those puff sponge, those loofah sponges. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love those things. And they said, I'm sorry. I was like, how do you even feel clean if you don't lose one of those scratching things where you're ripping off your skin, you know? I'm getting an amen over here. I appreciate that. Well, these guys thought it was just so funny that I, a young man, used one of these puffs. And moreover, I didn't have the common sense to know that I shouldn't brag about it. And so they gave me, they gave me the nickname on this airport shuttle, Puff Weisswig. And they just thought it was so funny, and everybody's joking. And you know how you can kind of sense in a circle? <laughs> that wasn't nice. You didn't... That wasn't friendly. It looks friendly, but that wasn't friendly. And so that, that kind of followed me into the camp. This is like two, three days later, and they think it's so funny. Now Puff Weisswig has turned into PW, and it's just trailing me around. And then the youth get a hold of it. And they don't know what it means. Irish, Irish youth don't know what a, they do know what a puff is. That word means something different over there. It's coming back to me. I forgot that in first service. There was a reason the youth latched onto this. Long story short, P-dub, P-W became P-dub, and it became my nickname for this whole two weeks at summer camp. And by the end of the week, I'd be like walking down the road and like, P-dub, and I'd be like, it was like this badge of honor. The kids loved me. And it was so cool to think, man, that I actually kind of got nervous on that airport shuttle because I thought, this is not going to go good if I'm starting off these two weeks with this like weird, uncomfortable, mild mockery name. And then by the end of the two weeks, God just twisted it. And it created this like funny, lighthearted, open door that just created chemistry with the youth. And I do think that what the enemy went on that airport shuttle, what the enemy meant to alienate me, God used to build connection. Because there is a lot of power in what we call ourselves. There's a lot of power in a name. When Jacob gets his name, it's a curse. When Jacob gets his name, his, wife, his mom is saying, you know what, this, this second son, he's grabbing for the place of his older brother, his twin brother. So we're going to give him that as an identity. And when you look at this first turning point in his life in Genesis 27... Because it's really important to understand that um, Jewish culture is a primogeniture culture, which means that when the, um, the hierarchy of the, of the family would pass, when the, the patriarch of the family, the leader, the, the top dad of the family, when he would pass, they would have a very formal celebration where they would pass that headship on to the oldest son. They call that primogeniture. And so there's this moment... In Jacob's life where his mom calls him in. And his mom calls him in and he says something really, really weird. Something you should never read in a Hebrew story. She says, Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Because Isaac just told Esau, Hey son, come here. It's really interesting. Isaac refers to Esau as his son. He refers to Jacob as her son. In this passage. And what it's revealing is Esau has grown up to be this like field man. Esau is strong. He is a hunter. He's a man of the 
man of the land. He knows how to, he knows how to get stuff done. And dad really likes that about him. Dad want, likes identifying with his son Esau. He likes identifying with his physical strength. Doesn't feel so connected to Jacob. Jacob is very much a mama's boy. Jacob is very much hungry for that sense that dad sees me too. And Rebecca treats him as if the only chance he has to get that blessing, to get seen by dad, is if she jumps in and helps because she doesn't fully trust her husband. So there's this moment where she overhears Isaac say, hey son, Esau, come here. I'm going to give you my blessing. I want you to go out. And so she tells her son, she calls her son Jacob over and said, I was listening when Esau left the door open to hunt into the country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father. That's the first really big hint that something's wrong in this family. This is not supposed to be done in secret. This isn't supposed to be something that my wife overhears from the other room. This would be something our family would come together around. This would be something that we would celebrate. But there's this break. There's this fracture. There's this compartmentalization, this compartmentalization in the family. And she says, I overheard your father say to your brother, bring me some game and prepare some tasty food that I might eat it and give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord. Now, son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he gives you his blessing before he dies. Jacob is the one carrying the banner of deceiver. But he didn't invent that strategy. He learned that. That was modeled for him. Assertive, vulnerable communication. Him going to his dad and saying, Dad, I feel like you don't see me. Where is my blessing? That was not modeled for Jacob. Jacob is only repeating what's being taught to him. In this case, explicitly taught. Excuse me, I just spit a little bit. (laughs) Then take it. And give it to your father, and he gives you a blessing. And Jacob tries to protest a little bit. He says, but, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, and, and I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him, and I would bring a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Go and get them for me. And Jacob participates in this deception, and he deepens, he deepens his own identity as a supplanter. And what's so, so powerful for us, what's so important is that we need to understand the power of these labels that we give each other. We need to understand that labels serve a fear purpose to us. Labels reduce complex people with histories and stories. They reduce them to a character. They reduce somebody that that really frustrates me, a different political point of view, a different faith, a different... They reduce them to this thing that I can dismiss or even in some cases outright hate. And it just makes my messy world really clean. It is so important for us to see that this story lays it out so plainly. This is not the story of a man whose identity is that of a a supplanter. This is the story of a family who, without even knowing it, hands that inheritance of fear down to his son. There's a, there's something that's made really physical and made really visual in this moment that anxiety and scarcity are curses that are, are passed down in our nervous system. You know, um, neuro researchers can observe in real time as a, as a mom is holding its infant, her infant up against her chest, 
the baby's nervous system is going to activate and downregulate, meaning go into stress and then come back into calm in sync with mom's stress. So as mom feels stressed about this, that, and the other thing, baby's stress is going up and coming back down. I heard one mom talking about, man, when, when I was nursing my kids, we were going through a major loss. The only question I would have, did that mom lean into the work? Did she do the work of grief? Did she allow herself to go through the process? Because her nervous system is going to guide that infant through the grieving process. The baby doesn't ever have to know what's happening. It just needs to know that my nervous system ends in a downregulated calm state. And so what happens is, as our kids are growing up, if mom and dad have unprocessed fear, if mom and dad has unhealed wounds, we pass them down and we never even have to name them. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? There's, a, um, there's something that God built into our brains that we get a sense of safety, love, and identity from our caregivers. It starts at birth, which is a really great system if mom and dad's needs are whole and met. They have those things to fill our tank with. But if they don't, we see these little moments of fail, which become systemic trauma within a family. There's this really powerful piece of research that was done in 1964. There's a researcher named um, Richard or Robert Rosenthal, Harvard professor. Robert Rosenthal was a... Um, researcher on education and intelligence at Harvard, and he wanted to know how much, how much did a teacher's expectation of their student impact the student outcome? So he came up with this really clever idea. I'm not sure if he'd be allowed to do it today. It was pretty fantastic. He took a super normal IQ test, just run-of-the-mill IQ test. They called this IQ test the Flanagan's Test of General Ability. It was 1964, don't judge. And he put a new cover on this run-of-the-mill IQ test that said, Harvard, let me find it, Harvard test of inflected acquisition. Now, what he was making up was a, was a uh, fake term, inflected, meaning increase, spike, acquisition, acquirement of knowledge. So what he's saying is he would hand this test to these teachers, and he'd say, this is a very special test. It wasn't. This is a very special test. This test is designed by Harvard scientists to identify which of your students are about to have a sharp increase in their IQ. And so he had these teachers administer this test. He collected them back. They don't know how to score IQ, IQ tests. And he completely randomly selected a group from each classroom and told the teachers, these six or seven or eight students are going to have massive success in the next two years. You are going to see their IQs spike. And then he stood back and he watched them for the next two years. And he noticed across the board, every student that he had pulled out at random had a sharp spike in their IQ over the two-year period. They identified seven behaviors that the teachers did differently with those kids. You can sum them up in these three words. They listened, they watched, and they engaged. When Robert told these teachers, these students are gifted. These students are going to do something amazing. These students are going to be successful. The teacher changed their posture and their expectation towards the student. They leaned in. They got to know them. They got curious about what they're passionate about. They got curious about what they were gifted in. They encouraged them. They called out their victories. They challenged their, their failures. They said, hey, this ain't you. You can do better than this. And the students responded by increasing their capacity. 
The labels and expectations we put on people matter. They transform what's possible. So Jacob grows up with this, with this banner. You could call it a curse on his life. And he has this moment of truth where he lies to his dad. He's already lied to his brother. He deceives his dad and he steals the blessing. And immediately that doesn't satisfy. Immediately he's scared. His fear is A, that didn't make me feel better. What's wrong? Dad gave me this blessing. He gave me those words I've been craving to hear my whole life and I don't feel better. And B, now Esau, a very large man, wants to kill me. This is not good. So Jacob flees. He runs for his life. And in the next scene, Jacob is running. He's in a new land. He's in a new territory. This territory doesn't have any significance. It doesn't have a special name yet. He's all by himself. And the Lord brings him a dream as he falls asleep. He says, I looked up and I saw the Lord. And the Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of your Abraham, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And he goes on to say, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go. And Jacob wakes up from this dream and he says, surely God was here and I didn't even know it. And so they call this place Bethel, house of God. And then Jacob takes in that vision. He takes it in the only way he knows how through the lens of his family trauma. And you hear Jacob respond to the dream and he says, if God if God really will go with me on this journey, if God will give me the clothes and the food that I need, if God really will bring me back, then the Lord will be my God. And I will give him a tenth of everything he gives me. And Jacob takes a massive leap forward, right? He grows closer to God. He starts to believe I might be able to have access to God. I might be able to receive a blessing, but he's still looking at it through the old lens and he enters into a conditional relationship with God. And he goes from being the deceiver who thinks the only way I'm going to get a blessing is by fooling and trickery, by deception. And he becomes a man who embodies the spirit of religion, who's a man who lives ethically. He does the right thing, but he does it with the belief that he's still on his own. And he spends the next 20 years trying to earn and perform a sense of identity for himself. He goes to his uncle Laban and he says, your daughter, Rachel, is beautiful. He falls in love with her. I want to marry her. He works for seven years. Laban tricks him. All of a sudden, Jacob wakes up and he realizes he's working for his old self. Jacob is working for a schemer. He's working for a manipulator. And now he has to deal with this. He wakes up and now he's married to Leah because that's how it used to work back then. Um, if you sleep with somebody, that's a big commitment. And he goes to Laban. He says, that doesn't work for me. And he says, okay, give me seven more years. So he gets fooled and tricked into, into working for 20 years. He's growing in wealth. He's working really hard. Laban is getting more and more insecure because he feels like the only wealth I'm getting is from Jacob. And then Jacob gets to this point where he can't do anymore. He resents Laban so much because all of us resent our own fear that we carry in our hearts. He resents Laban so much that he flees. And he runs away with Laban's daughters and Laban's granddaughters. And Laban runs after him. And now he's scared. Laban is more powerful than he is. He is running away from Laban in one direction. Laban is behind him. And then he gets word from one of his, his servants that there's somebody up ahead of him headed this way. 
his brother Esau, and 400 men. What does 400 men sound like? It sounds like an army. And that's what Jacob heard as well. So now Jacob, he's a wealthy man. He's a man who's running for his life. There's fear behind him. There's fear in front of him. And he still doesn't have an identity. And he's come to a place in his life where he's truly desperate. And that's the scene that we step into in this last chapter that we're going to look at, chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. So Jacob was left alone. He's got his whole clan. His, his, his family and his wealth is multiplied. He has sheep and goats. He's, he's like a really, really successful man outwardly. And he sends his family ahead of him because he thinks Esau's going to kill him. So he breaks him up into two parties. He's like, oh, if he slaughters half of my family, at least the other one might get away. He's terrified. He sends them away. And he's left alone in this moment of fear. He's left unknown with nothing to come from him. Performance, moral performance, didn't work for it. It didn't get him there. The scheming of the first 20 years of his life growing up, it didn't get him there. He's tried rebellion. He's tried religion. And he's still a man looking for an identity. Are you with me? And so, so Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. It's really interesting. There's no introduction of this man. It just says, and a man is there and he's wrestling with Jacob. He wrestles with him all night. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, meaning Jacob wasn't giving up. Jacob was at a place in his life where he had nothing to lose. It's interesting. When I read this story in the past, I realized, I realized I read this from a very empowered place of Jacob. Like Jacob was exerting strength. He said, I won't let you go until you bless me. That is not a picture of a person that we're looking at right now. So the man saw that he could not overpower him and he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched. And as he wrestled with the man, then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. So now Jacob is crippled. Now it's daybreak. And for some reason, daytime, this guy has to go. And he turns to Jacob and he says, unless... He says, let me go for it is daybreak. And Jacob says to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And again, I really have to, I I had to take in, what is the emotional state of this man? Because that sounds strong to me. No, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. But that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at a man who thinks that death is behind him. He thinks that death is in front of him. He's been working for 40 years to have a sense of blessing, a sense of name, a sense of identity. And this last, there's something about this moment in his solitude, in his aloneness. And he says, no, I'm not leaving. Give me a blessing because I've got nowhere else to turn. And this man turns to him. And he says to him, what is your name? He's wrestling with this guy. He breaks his hip. He starts to leave. And he says, what is your name? And Jacob says the only name he's ever known. He answers him. And it says Jacob, right? But that word has meaning to him. So he looks up at this guy. He's lying on the ground. He's in pain. And he says, what is your name? And Jacob says, I'm the heel grabber. I'm the supplanter. I'm the guy that wasn't seen by dad. And then the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, 
because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Jacob says, please tell me your name, even though the guy just revealed who he was, huh? He said, you're the guy that's wrestled with God. He just revealed who he was. And Jacob says, what is your name? And this, this one confused me. It looks like the man doesn't answer him, but he does. He says to the man, what is your name? And the man answers his question with blessing. That finally, for the first time in Jacob's life, he has a feeling of his own sonship. He has a feeling of his own blessing. He has an identity. He has a new name that says, I am a person who fights. I am a person who can overcome. For the first time in his life, he has an identity. Scarcity and fear are only broken off our life when we stop trusting in our own strength. There's a couple of things about this scene that that took a minute for me. I was, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you guys. At about 12.30 last night, I was getting frustrated. I'm looking at this scene. Why is he wrestling? Why is that a thing? Nobody can wrestle with God. God doesn't get overpowered by people. That's not a thing. And I have this image. Well, my girls, they're nine and 10 now and they're, and they're tall. In fact, you're, one of your, I think it was the director of your children's ministry, she came up and she said, the first thing I had to do was ask, how old are you, sweetie? Because they don't look. They don't look like a third and a fifth grader. When they were little, when they were like three or four, we used to do a lot of wrestling. We don't do that so much anymore because if I lifted them up, I would get really hurt. But when they were little, one of our favorite things to do was wrestle. And I would make all the noises. I would growl and I would like groan in defeat and I would pick them up. And when they would jump on top of me, I would collapse and I'd strike the ground and I would give them the experience of strength. But it wasn't for me. I wasn't testing them. I wasn't bumping up against my limits. I was giving them a taste of who they are. They are loved and they are powerful, right? And there's this moment in Jacob's life when he comes face to face with God. Most theologians would say, this is actually the first appearance of Jesus. He comes face to face with God and God wrestles with him. He didn't wrestle with him for for God's sake. He wrestled with him because he knew that Jacob needed an opportunity to look into his, his father's eyes and say, I see you. And say, tell me your name. Not anymore. It's time to put that name down. I'm giving you a new name. I'm giving you a new blessing. I'm giving you a new identity. Jacob has been grasping his entire life. He grasped as a deceiver. He grasped as a performer. And now he is grasping out of his last opportunity, out of sheer desperation and fear, he's holding on to this man who he's been wrestling with, who he now knows is God. And there's, this, there's one more thing that really struck me. You know, I was thinking, where was he holding on to? You know, God just dislocated his hip. Jacob's lying on the ground. This man is not wounded. This man is fine. This man says, up, oh, sun's coming up. It's time to go. And he's trying to walk away. And he says, let me go because it's daybreak and he's holding on to God in the way that he came into the world. He's holding on to God in the way 
that he's been carrying that curse his whole life in his identity. And in that moment, it doesn't say this explicitly, in that moment, God looks down at him and says, okay, what's your name? And he gets to experience it. I'm still carrying that curse. I'm still carrying that weight. I'm still carrying the thing that was modeled for me that I internalized. I'm still carrying that as my identity. And he says it, I'm, I'm Jacob. And that's when God says to him, that's not who you are anymore. You see, that was a part of who you are. The guy who fights, the guy who holds on, the guy who endures, that's a part of your identity. I put it there, but you misunderstood it your whole life. Your mom saw you coming out and out of her own trauma and her own insecurity, she gave you a name. She misinterpreted the signs and she gave you a name that does not fit you. And I'm telling you who you are. You are the one that wrestles with God. And that's the last piece, hear that. Jacob spent his entire life wrestling against God. Jacob spent his entire life scheming, trying to fool people into giving him his blessing. Why? Because I can't trust God. If I can't trust God, then I've got to work against that. I've got to trick people into giving him a blessing. I've got to perform into giving myself an identity. And this is the first moment that Jacob is named as somebody who wrestles with. Wrestles with a father who's wrestling back. Wrestles with a father who's got his back. Does that make sense? You know, when, uh, when he asks the same question back to God and he says, what is your name? Please tell me your name. And God doesn't answer. He just blesses him. It doesn't tell us what happened. It just tells us that everything changed. Because after that moment, after that encounter, where Jacob finally let go, Jacob stopped striving. He stopped performing. He stopped rebelling. It's really interesting. One of the things that I saw, I encountered when I was down downtown yesterday, we were walking around, we're seeing this beautiful city. And it, it's, it's striking. You see these two polars, don't you? You see these two extremes. You see people who are walking around with an appearance of holiness in bondage. You know, there's something I learned really early in therapy. Nobody is more dangerous than an unhealthy therapist. Why? Because an unhealthy therapist is somebody who spent years getting really high level training and practicing the, the skills and the behaviors of health. But if I've, de- if I've denied and ignored my own shadow, if I've ignored and denied my own sin, then I can enter into these really vulnerable conversations with people and it doesn't matter what they're reflecting back to me, I'll twist it and I'll turn it back on them. Nothing is more dangerous emotionally than a therapist who isn't looking at their own sin. And I think that's true. Nothing is more dangerous to our hearts, our hearts who yearn and crave connection for God than false religion because it looks and it smells like connection, but it leaves us operating in our own power in fear and false control. And you see these two things when we're walking around downtown, we see that spirit of religion. And then we see this hard no. We see people saying, absolutely not. I don't understand what I want, but I'm not doing that. And you see this rebellion. We went to this amazing taco shop, amazing taco shop. I don't know who owned this taco shop, but they were from God. And one of the employees had this, uh, had this t-shirt they were wearing that, um, that said in no uncertain terms, it basically listed off four or five, um, we'll just call it things that the church doesn't approve of. 
just lists off four or five of these identities. And they were in that back and it struck me like they just need, there's something about living in this environment that that person needs everybody to know. I don't know why, but I'm not a part of that. And we see these two pullers and we see Jacob did both of those things, didn't he? He started off in rebellion. He tried the spirit of religion and now he is at a surrendered place of desperation. So I just want to encourage you guys, if you're sitting here and God is waking up a sense of what's a name that I've been carrying? What's a piece of my identity that is not from God? A burden, a curse that, that I learned just in a, in a dance of anger with my parents or striving for connection or the shutdown because I couldn't get them to turn towards me so I just stopped needing them. And I've been, I've been operating in that curse for the last 20 years. If God is waking that up right now, that's nothing to be scared of. That's actually something to celebrate. That is an invitation. When this pain comes to the surface, it is God inviting you in to freedom. So let me just take a moment. I want to pass the mic over to Pastor Matt. And I just want to encourage you guys. When pain comes to the surface, it is your nervous system trying to heal. When the Holy Spirit brings up an area of incongruence or an area of fear, it is the Holy Spirit inviting you out of agreement with fear and into agreement with who God says you are. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.